Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Good evening, everybody. It's Jared Van Heese with the Habitat Podcast. I got my trusty co-host, Jesse Burnham. How you doing, bud? Hey, man. What's going on? How you doing? Oh, not too bad. Got a nice little Sunday going on, you know. Nothing crazy. Yeah. I'm feeling a little rough. Had a few sodas yesterday for uh, St. Patty's Day, so I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging in there. Literally hanging, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I was... Uh, you know, you, you uh, texted me and said we were going to do this podcast yesterday as I'm drinking a beer, and I said, oh, man, this is going to be interesting. And then luckily we uh, mixed our schedules up and are doing it today. So, Yeah, I figured it would have been more entertaining, but that way with you, but <laughs> you never know. That's cool this way, too. <laughs> yeah, I slurred my words uh, already, so it would have been bad. <laughs> well, we're all on uh, fairly straight and narrow today, nothing crazy. Um, I'm pretty excited about our guest. We have uh, Jake Elinger from Habitat Solutions 360 coming on tonight. Yeah, I'm I'm excited, man. I've uh, I've probably been following him on Facebook and through some other channels probably for I'd say probably the past two years. Um, and seems a pretty experienced guy, and uh, seems like he has a lot of wisdom and. Uh, it seems like he's a very avid deer hunter and habitat manager. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. He's uh, been around the block once or twice, I think, when it comes to this stuff. Um, got kind of a few things I want to cover with him, but, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to let him roll and see how he, see which direction he wants to go, you know? Perfect, perfect. So, have you, uh, I know it's, kind of early, but have you been doing any habitat work or thinking of anything, or what have you been doing, just sitting on your butt or what? Yeah, just working, um, but I've been thinking about it. I actually went out and frost-seeded a little bit, probably two, probably three weeks ago. Um, I, was okay. in, I was in Hillsdale with my customer, and I, I was like, oh, I got tired of swing by the property quick on the way home, so I, I swung by, I Walked the clover plot and threw out about, that's only two pounds of clover. I'm not sure if it was enough, but broadcast, broadcast that real quick and then uh, grabbed your cell camera and then I left. So, I oh, got that. Nice. But, um, oh, perfect. I'm probably going to go out and frost seed the other main plot that we were hunting over more of because. If I don't, it's just going to get filled in with weeds all spring and summer, and then we got to kill all those weeds and chill them under, possibly. So 
I think it might be more beneficial to just, uh, you know, put in some good food right now and they can eat it all summer versus letting the weeds grow up, even though weeds are deer food too, I guess. I don't know. How about you? What have you been doing? Oh, I, well, I've been staring at the aerial of our uh, property up north. It's only 15 acres, but it hunts like a hundred. It's surrounded by state land, as you know. Yeah. And I uh, got a game plan this year. I want to put two new elevated blinds up there for us and definitely do some hinge cutting and clearing to get in a few food plots. Um, my cousin's going to have his uh, machine up there kind of help me maneuver some big trees and get these uh, gun shacks, as you say, up in the air. But just kind of getting a game plan and trying to figure out what I want to do and when to do it in my busy schedule. Yeah, I hear you. Young kids will do that to you and me. Um, now, that sounds pretty sweet out there. Where do you want to put those blinds at? Well, I want to replace the blind we already have by the house. Uh, just Why? That thing's so pretty. <laughs> I know. Well, it is called the deer killer. I mean, we, we shoot deer out of there every year, but it's just, I mean, you were in it last year with me when I shot that doe. I mean, if you if you made the wrong move, that thing was swaying, so I, I don't want anyone to get hurt, and I'd like to <laughs> elevate it by another five to eight feet. Yeah, that thing, uh, uh, Trusty Rusty is probably a good name for it, something like that. It's it's a It's a proven... Method, obviously, it works, but being yeah, it'd be nice to get yeah, and nicer and higher in there. And up there, you know, we mainly go up there and gun hunt. We got to go up there and bow hunt more. But I think I'm also going to put one towards the front of the property, either right on the road, coming back into the property, or okay. I might kind of go 300 yards to the south of that blind. Now, um, my dad went up there and walked the whole property line and marked everything out so we'll have a better idea of where we're at. Yeah. So that'll be kind of cool. Okay. Now is south the direction of where I shot my buck this year, kind of, sort of? Uh, like you're talking towards that ravine down there and whatnot? Yeah, well, basically if you were sitting in that blind looking out to the right towards 612 towards Ed's house. Okay. So I guess that would be, what, southeast? Gotcha. Yeah, for everybody that doesn't yeah. know, we're talking up in uh, Lewiston, Michigan, Montmorency County, where we do our, our deer camps. So that's cool, man. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, other than that, just working, trying to make some money, uh, doing some spring cleaning. Uh, but, yeah, just trying to stay busy right now. Yeah, well, if you ever have any free time and you want to uh, – Come help me with my basement. You're more than welcome. <laughs> I'll come help you hang that drywall once you get it down the stairs. Yeah, exactly. What free time, too. Yeah. But, yeah, let's get rolling with Jake, man. I'm excited to get him on the line and uh, see what he has to say. And hopefully uh, I got my notepad here to take some notes. I'm sure he's going to have tons of information. Cool. Yeah, let me um, hold on one second and let me get him. Sounds good. Okay. I'm glad you could join us. Um, we started this podcast to basically talk about ways we can learn new habitat improvement, uh, procedures, strategies for hunting, um, and we thought, who better to call than a guy like yourself? Well, you know, it, uh, 
Uh, number one, thank you very much. It kind of humbles me, you know. Uh, I still look at myself as, as learning every day and just an everyday guy. But uh, I have learned a few things over the years, and I'm happy to share them with you. So, uh, you know, so just fire away. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us. Um, Jess, let's go ahead and get this rolling. You want to uh, dive in on our first subject? We'll get right to it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's the uh, day after St. Patty's Day and uh, 60 degrees here in Michigan, so it's uh, making us itch to get out in the woods and do some habitat work. Um, but, Jake, if you want, you want to just give us a little background to you. I know you're a Michigan boy and uh, kind of how you got started in habitat and what, what sure. you going. Yeah, I, I will, you know. Uh, yeah, born and raised here in Michigan, uh, Lenawee County, a uh, little area called Devil's Lake, kind of a tourist area here, northwest Lenawee County. I uh, grew up here all my life. Uh, you know, did this, uh, got married early uh, in my life. Uh, I was a mechanical engineer in my 20s and 30s. That was my profession that I uh, uh, learned to do and uh always loved deer hunting, and uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, when I was, oh, like a teenager, there were very few deer in this part of the state, and so I was more of a small game. I, I hunted a lot of pheasants and ducks and rabbits and, and squirrels and that sort of thing, but the deer were slowly moving in, and I'll tell you, from the moment I saw my first whitetail buck, I just I just wanted to give up all kinds of hunting and chase these deer you know, <laughs> and, learn, and learn about them because they were so rare. It was like seeing a unicorn. I mean, I still remember my dad coming home from work when I was maybe eight years old. And just, you know, from the moment he pulled in the driveway, it was, come on, kids. You know, I got an older brother and sister. Get in the, get in the car. There's a deer down the road. And he drove us down the road to show us the deer. That was a big deal, you know. And, uh, you know, to, to now be where we are today with high deer densities and browse lines and all the things that we have to consider as a, as a in habitat management and uh, land stewardship. But uh, from that moment on, I really got into deer hunting and following and pursuing deer, learning what I could about deer. So uh, by the time I was in my 20s and 30s, and I I started killing deer uh, young in my life. Actually, my, my first white tail, I killed with a, uh, a flintlock. 50 caliber uh, round ball, patch ball, traditional stuff, okay? Wow. And because my dad was big into muzzleloaders before anybody was into them. It was just the thing he liked to do with a few of his buddies. And after I shot a few of them, and, and you got to realize this was back in the mid-60s. So a 12-gauge a slug gun, which was a, a, a pheasant hunting gun, if you could hit a refrigerator at 20 feet with a slug, that was really doing well. They okay? didn't. <laughs> They didn't have buck barrels and stuff like that. So when I got that 50 caliber uh, footlock in my hand, and I could hit a uh, golf ball at, at 100 yards, I said, well, this is what I'm going to hunt with. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're like a pro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and the truth is I killed my, uh, actually it was a button buck. My first year I ever killed was a button buck, and I think I was, uh, I believe I was 14 when I, when I killed that deer. And my parents couldn't believe it when I came home with a heart and liver in the bag. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that really made a lot happen in my life. And uh, I was lucky enough in my 20s uh, to knock on door and uh, get permission to hunt some pretty good properties in Lenaway and Hillsdale County. And uh, as, as uh, my wife and I were both uh, involved in the, you know, the automotive industry, 
And uh, she was a test driver for Chrysler, and I was a uh, chemical engineer for a high-speed automation company. And uh, we had an opportunity to buy a farm that I actually killed my first year on. Oh, was right next to my, wow. And my mom and dad, uh, when I grew up, they had just a acre or two. But about the time I graduated from high school, they bought 65 acres just down the road uh, from this house. And it was a farm that we always had permission to, to hunt when I was a kid. And then the other side of it, the other 70 acres came up for sale. And I just thought, you know, like, a, like oh, I'll just make an offer and see what happens. You know, I couldn't afford it. But the truth is they, they accepted the offer. And I was like, oh, man, i got to come up with the money, you know. Uh, it was the best thing I ever did. So we bought this uh, 70-acre uh, property. And actually, it's a little less than that. It's, it's just under – it's 67 and three-quarters, so it's 68 acres. Okay. And from the, from the moment that I closed on it, uh, I started trying to do things. And uh, the simple things with planting conifers and uh, trying to get edge. I, I knew enough about edge at that time and how deer used edge that I was trying to increase edge and things like that. So I just kind of took off on my own and over, you know, and, and you get realize I bought this property in uh, 1981. And it wasn't like you could pick up a magazine. Uh, you know, the Internet didn't exist. Uh, if there was TV shows, there was no TV shows about habitat, you know. Oh, that's <laughs> so, so I learned it, a lot of trial and error. I just got to tell you, it was just constant trial and error. But uh, my goal was to make it a good hunting property. And, uh, you know, I mean, I tried a lot of different things that were failures. Um, I, I had some good success. And, and I'll tell you, probably the best thing that ever happened was we had a, we had a really, uh, a real bad ice storm that took place probably the second year I owned, probably about 1982. And there was a little peninsula. The cool thing about this property is it's got about 20 acres of flooded timber, and it's got some peninsulas, and it's just a great wood duck and mallard spot. And so I was, you know, I was a big waterfowl hunter when I was younger, and I still continued to hunt ducks and geese at that time. And uh, But anyways, out on this peninsula, there was a half a dozen big old red cedars. And because of the ice storm, it pulled those cedars down and venomed really severely, and, and because the ice storm was midwinter, the ice stayed all year, so when the ice melted, those those trees never snapped back and stood up. They had these big curves, and uh, the following year, bucks were bedding under them. So I started, you know, I was actually sitting back, and, and I was lucky enough to watch a buck uh, get up from there one day, and then other bucks go in and go underneath and bed down. And then, you know, as the hunting seasons would come to an end and there'd be snow on the ground, I'd go in there and investigate and see, the, see where they were bedding and say, gee, they really preferred this. So before you ever heard the word hinge cunning, and I didn't really know, I didn't even know what I was doing at the time, I started pulling trees over to try and duplicate what these cedar trees were doing to get deer oh, to bed. Yeah. And they actually were starting to work, you know. And, uh, and then, you know, as a year, I met a lot of different people, but... Uh, you know, that kind of tells you how I got into this. You know, my goal was to have good hunting on a property that was, you know, if you give a property a, a, a 1 to 10 rating, this property was a 4 at best, okay? It didn't have any food. It, it had it was a closed canopy forest. It, even though it had water and edge, it just didn't have what it needed. And, of course, back in 81, the deer density was probably... I'm going to say maybe 20 deer per square mile at best, okay? So uh, um, so I went through an awful lot of things to get uh, 
this property in the shape that it's in. Um, but the truth is, you know, you learn from your successes and you really learn from your failures. And before you know it, I started getting into food plots and planting warm season grasses and really getting into uh, hinge cutting and timber stand improvement. And, you know, the more I worked, the harder I worked, the better I did deer hunting. Uh, and it took a long time for me to figure out everything about age class. And, you know, there was just so much that went into my head during, you know, really, I went from my uh, mid-20s to where I'm at now to a complete change on how I hunted, how I looked at deer. I mean, you know, there was a time in my life, a deer with antlers, if it held still, I was shooting it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Been there. And, and and probably you guys each too, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My yeah, my first year was a a West Michigan state land spike, so I understand uh, <laughs> a lot of where you're coming from. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I, uh, I I fell in love with bow hunting. You know, right from an early age. Um, I was the only one in our family that bow hunted, and my parents bought me a a bow license when I was 12, and they kind of snickered, you know. <laughs> yeah, going out in the woods with those cedar arrows and that Fred Bear recurve, yeah, good luck, you know. <laughs> and they were not deer hunters, you know. They, they weren't because they grew up in this area, and they were big trappers, and, and, I, and I will say that was a big part of my deer hunting was I also was raised in a trapping family. And uh, if you talk to any good it seems like there's a number of successful deer hunters and land managers out there started out their life trapping. And if you learn about trapping foxes, trapping mink, and trapping muskrats, you, you figure out travel corridors and things like that. I mean, all these critters got places that you can catch them. So uh, uh, it was just really cool having that background and then applying that to deer. So, now, Jake, um, when you were talking about that property, you said it had good food or good water and had an edge. What do you mean by an edge? Well, what I mean is, uh, if you're standing in an in an open hardwood, it's a mixture of oaks and uh, maples and you know some white oaks and red oaks and uh, some hickories, and eventually, you know, you have a slow. It's not a steep bank, but it's a slow four to three foot a terrain change from the high ground to where you hit the water's edge, okay? And just, you know, right at that edge, you're going to have a stem density change because you're actually changing, um, you know, uh, you go from from oaks and maples and things like that, so now you're going into dogwood and buckbrush and maybe some willows, so it's a completely different monoculture. And so you can stand in that wood now, in any wood, and see that edge. And if you're any kind of uh, deer hunter that pays attention, you'll notice most of the time a lot of deer will follow that edge. Because, yeah. it, you know, they're, number one, it's good habitat. It's thicker. Um, a lot of that, those dogwoods and willows are kind of an underbrush-type species. So uh, you have browse, you know, available browse at the deer's level right there that they can punch on, you know, and that sort of thing. So, so that's what I meant by the edge, Jesse. Okay. Awesome. Now, if you don't mind me asking, back in the late 70s when you purchased that, what was land going for per acre? I'll tell you exactly what I paid for this. And at the time, I was told by, uh, I had a father-in-law that kind of chuckled and thought I was out of my mind. (laughs) What was a guy my age doing buying 68 acres at $530 an acre? Oh, my goodness. Wow. 
you know, that I overpaid for it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you sure didn't now. Wow. No, yeah, that was the, you know, and, and the truth is, I don't know how old you guys are or what age class you're in, but regardless of what land is going for today, you just wait 40 years and it will be substantially higher, you know. Um, land just continues to, you know, sometimes it goes fast, but it's always going up. You know, once in a while you'll have a little bit of a reset if you run in. You know, we had the oil embargo and all the farmers went bankrupt during the, uh, oh, I guess you're going to call probably the early 80s. There was a lot of that going on. Uh, and that sort of reset our real estate prices a little, but not, you know, nothing big. You know, probably in a in a 5 to 10% kind of thing. So, uh That's- I'm still uh, waiting but, for that reset so I can afford but, but the I, I'll, I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, one of the reasons we bought this property, besides my love of hunting and wanting to own my own land, and, and and you guys have probably run into this. You meet people, you knock on the doors, and you get permission to hunt, and, you, and you've got a great place, and you're seeing the scrapes and the rubs. Well, you can't control it because he also lets other people hunt. And... Uh, uh, that's what I would run into. I would, I was, you know, I was far from any decent hunter at the time, but I could read sign and I knew where to hide. And this was way before tree stands were legal in Michigan, so you were hunting on the ground, and uh, you know there was not very good camouflage available, uh, if any. But uh, the truth is, I was killing deer on the ground with a bow, and uh, geez, you know that was that was the coolest thing in the world, you know. So uh, my wife and I, like I said, we, we were both. Uh, she was a test driver, and I worked for uh, automotive companies, uh, putting in high-speed automation, building cars and transmissions and you name it, you know. And uh, as young people, we were doing pretty good. I mean, we, we were making decent money. And uh, I would go to an accountant, you know, to do our taxes. And after about three years of both of us claiming zero single and having the maximum amount of money taken out of our paychecks all year, and even though we had one son at the time, we would write a check at that time, a ludicrous amount of money to the IRS. <laughs> we were being penalized because we were both being successful. So the yeah. one thing my accountant yeah. said is, says, you know what? He says, here's what I suggest. He says, go out and buy some real estate. He says, at the end of the year, you're not going to have any money, but at the end of 20 years, you're going to own it. And, I mean, it stuck with me. And, I, and so, I mean, truly, we went off and, uh, you know, and this property just sort of popped up, you know, uh, friends friends of friends. Hey, there's a piece of property right there by your mom and dad's for sale. And, you know, so we went and looked at it. And, you know, and, of course, I knew it so well because I'd been all over this farm when I was a kid because the previous owners gave us permission to hunt it and everything. Uh, like I said, I killed my first deer here. But, uh-huh. uh yeah, it was it was great. You know, we bought it, and, and uh, in the beginning, it was under a land contract situation that ballooned, I believe, in like ten years. And uh, my wife and I were hard workers and goal-oriented individuals. And by the end of that ten years, we had uh, we were able to move money around and get it refinanced. But you know, we had some bit, we had some larger chunks of money, and then in a very short amount of time. Uh, in those in those days, with that kind of money, we ended up paying it completely off. Wow! Yeah, he, was, he was working really hard. I was working. Now we weren't taking vacations. We weren't buying lavish automobiles. We were taking every extra penny we had to put into this property and pay it off. And our goal was to build a house here and live here, which which we Kirk now have done. You know, so it's great how it all worked out. You know, 
So uh, I can just say to anybody, if you if you set your goals and you and you hit the grindstone, and even though you run into a lot of uh, challenges and disappointments, just get up and brush yourself off and keep going. You know. Well, that so, sto- that story kind of gives me a little hope here, you know, because I got a little one, and so does Jared, and hopefully uh, we can just keep working and do what you did and. I think you just got to go for it as far as the property goes. I, I think you know if you uh, if you think too much about it, you'll talk yourself out of it. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so you know, I mean, you definitely have to have a plan and have the finances or some level of finances and and uh, a lot of faith in yourself that you're going to bite off more than you probably should chew. But by God, you're going to get there. And uh, in 1981, that was when my youngest boy was born, and his name, by the way, is Jared. <laughs> what a great so, name! You'd love to hear that, huh? Yeah, I don't hear yeah. that enough. You hear that name these days? It's the guys in prison, or it's a jewelry store. So, <laughs> no, that's those yeah, are all pretty great stories, there, Jake. Um, yeah. That's you know, I, I think it is a, a big risk gets you a, a big reward in terms of uh, biting off more than you can chew on that property. I mean, look at you now—you got sixty-seven and three-quarter acres, and you're Slaying deer on it, and you know your habitat's great. Oh yeah, it's just been, that's so cool. You know, and, and it has been so fun to be, you know. I, I was here in the beginning, and I know the kind of deer I saw then. And you know, I mean, I whacked the first year and a half old deer for I don't know how many years, you know. And it was a big deal. I mean, I, it truly was. I I I didn't understand scent control. I mean, I knew about hunting with the wind and those sort of things. I was not. Uh, astute enough to really I understood that deer bedded in particular areas but I was not disciplined enough to not get my scent where it didn't belong okay probably all of us have been through that at one oh, time yeah. or another huge. and uh, I will tell you probably that the defining moment in my hunting took place in about 1986 and uh, my wife Anaya had bought me an 870 with a buck barrel on it <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I still I still remember to this day, and, and I've seen this really nice deer two or three times bow hunting. But uh, you know, you know, again, I, I was uh, I was a purist, so I was uh, no sights, fingers, no release, oh, wow. and bear rec- bear recurve. I just enjoyed a challenge. I always have enjoyed a challenge, and and I killed some deer. Don't get me wrong, I, I killed some deer, but not, never anything exciting. No four point, five point, three point, but a lot of button bucks. Plenty of does, which was good. And uh, anyways, it was opening day of, of the gun season. And, you know, and I, I kind of joked with my wife and my older brother because we all met prior to eating. We always had this family tradition, big breakfast, get together, and then I'll go hunting. And, uh, you know, I said, boy, i got something. I can reach out and touch him now. He's not going uh, to get away from me. You know, and sure enough, I set up in this spot. And just at daylight, you know, I could just hear these swamps, you know, uh, I was telling you about, there's places that deer cross, so we had probably like a quarter to a three-eighths of an inch of ice. And then you can just hear this ice breaking and ice breaking for 100 yards, and finally, you know, you hear the leaves. And this eight-point comes strolling up there, you know, probably a good long shot, probably 75 yards in the woods, but, but I knew this gun was totally capable of it because it had, you know, the buck barrel. Anyway, he stopped, and, and the truth is I shot, and I hit him, you know, I killed him. And walked up to him, and my gosh, you know, for me, that's the biggest deer I'd ever seen, uh, biggest deer I'd ever killed. Um, he later field-dressed the following day at Knutson's buck pole at 237 pounds. 
Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> you were thus stunned. Oh, okay. Gosh. You know, and, and didn't score that well. I mean, in the, uh, uh, really for a, probably, this was way before I was doing Jaws and stuff like that. I so wish that it kept the job, and I didn't know back in those days. Um, he scored, um, like 115, 118, but I am, I am certain from his body size that was probably a four and a half year old deer. Yeah. And the way he stunk, <laughs> you know, he smelled like a buck, whatever, you know, dressing him out and everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you, so I, so I killed that deer and had him dressed out and was feeling pretty good. You know, it's opening day, it's not even been an hour after daylight and I got a really great eight point. And uh, I'm just leaning up against the tree, and that buck's laying about 30 yards away. And I hear something, and I look up, and here's a group of deer. And here's another really nice eight point, but he's a little bit smaller. And that, and I cast him. I let him go. And I remember telling my family about it, and I thought I was out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, you had two tags, right? And, and uh, yeah, and that's what, that's what it started. Um, from that point on, I've always had the goal. Or my rules here on this farm was as soon as I killed, whatever I killed, the second one had to be substantially larger. Okay. And uh, and, and I've moved that. Uh, some people might say it's absolutely crazy because uh, I killed a pretty nice deer this year, and the buck I passed in muzzleloader season this year was a real whopper. Okay. Really? I mean, I, but I did find his shed the other day, uh, you know, and he uh, – he didn't make 150, but he was really close. That wasn't that one on Facebook, was it? That one shed? Yeah, the, the one. Yeah, he's got five on one side. Oh, dude, he's so a that, stud. Yeah, that side is about. Uh, I think that side measures almost 80 inches. Yeah, he's a stud. That that's yeah, was really nice a, for a Michigan buck. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, real super nice deer. I know for sure that that deer. I'm pretty sure he's four and a half, so he'll be five and a half this year. And you and passed him uh, during muzzleloading season? Yeah, I did. I passed him in muzzleloader season. Wow, hands up. And, and actually, the and the buck I killed this year on November 8th, I passed him in muzzleloader season the year before. Okay. And, uh, you know, and then if you go back to 2016, when I killed Wrighty, this really cool five-and-a-half-year-old here on this property, I passed that deer literally for four years. And uh, so... So I've learned an awful lot about uh, creating habitat, uh, learning how to uh, how to hunt that habitat. Because when you guys do everything right, um, deer are in a, a, a bed-to-food pattern or a food-to-bed pattern other than about four to six weeks, depending on your deer density, and then you've got the rut, okay? So... Uh, one thing I've discovered about this property, as great as it is, and it is incredible because just all the work I've done and, and the amount of deer I have bedding on this property uh, from, say, about Thanksgiving on is a little bit awe-inspiring. I mean, if there's fresh snow in late November and early December and I do a little scouting, I can probably find 75 to 100 beds without a whole lot of trouble. Wow, and the deer, the deer move into this property uh, because there's great security cover, lots of early successional growth, and all kinds of food. and And I don't mess with them. <laughs> well, so literally, push them out. Yeah. you know, so I've got a lot of uh, neighboring hunters and uh, neighboring properties. That, that not that there's a huge amount of pressure from muzzleloader season, but there's still people out there. 
and those people uh, treat that pro- those properties different than this one. So this becomes more of a sanctuary. And uh, and, and as I've gotten older, I, it's not about killing near as much as it used to be. So I get a pretty big kick out of uh, seeing the deer, knowing they're there, and then saying, oh, man, what's he going to look like next year? You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, if he steps out in front of a truck, which has happened, or uh, goes off the property and gets killed by somebody else, hey, you know, that's great. Right. Probably the best year for somebody else. But if he does make it, and he's back in here again doing his thing in the summer and, uh, you know, coming around in the fall and working all my licking branches and I'm getting camera photos of him and I know he's around, then he's a cool deer to try and hunt, you know. So, so I've gone from probably the top 20% uh, 15, 20 years ago, where now I'm about the top 5% of the deer herd. You know, when it comes to the bucks, I'm right at that top 5, maybe 3% of the bucks. Uh, you know, whatever I've got on my camera survey, I'm, I'm, you know, there's many nice ones that people would be really happy with that I let go by. But, uh, you know, again, it's, it's not so much about killing. So now that it's now that that's a perfect segue there, Jake. Thanks for that. <laughs> now that it's not about killing so much, I take it you like doing the habitat stuff just as much, or maybe if not more. Probably more. I, I will tell you. Uh, uh, you know, um, probably for about the last. I'm going to say I have personally felt like I had a really good handle on my habitat for probably the last solid ten years. And what makes and what made you feel like you had a good handle versus versus just putting in the work and hoping they show up type thing? What was that? Uh, what I would say is um, every time I made an improvement, deer were there, yep. and they were there in in the volume. Okay, I had lots. Anytime I would do something, I just had lots of deer there, and and good bucks. You know, not just not just normal bucks, but good bucks. I mean. Really nice, 125s to 145s consistent, you know. And uh, you know, you know, there are certain parts of Michigan where uh, the ground is better, and people are seeing 170s and 160s, and that's great. And uh, we occasionally get one here that'll push 160, but I, but truly, I, I, you know, just based on the ground and the kind of genetics that I have, you know, if I get into the the mid 50s, you know, that's a very top end buck here, and there's nothing wrong with a 140 inch eight point or a 130 inch eight point for that matter, you know. No. So, uh, so what I can tell you is, over the years, as I developed my hinge cutting, and I hinge cut a lot differently than probably a lot of other fellows do. I do it with real precision. I, I utilize a lot of openings, a lot more openings than people would think. Uh, I like to get a lot of sun into these hinge cuttings, and I like a lot of fringe cover. Imagine kind of moving into an area with some some fences, so to speak, which are hinged trees, but with plenty of openings, so a deer never feels like it's pinned in. It can always go right, left, forward, backward. There's multiple entry and exits. And then when they get into these areas, it might be as large as an acre to an acre and a half with 90% or more trees cut. Um, there's, there's a, sometimes there's openings there in there that will go 20 yards by 10 yards. And I, that's what I call them rooms. And I literally create rooms in there and then little uh, spurs that go from one to another, and it's quite a maze. Okay, you can, you, I cut these trails that are two to three feet wide that deer can maneuver through. And, it, and, and I started doing that several years ago. 
And I probably had the best luck with that, and then I'm really good with my food. Uh, I, I've just been, you know, uh, uh, you know, this last year was the worst drought I, I can recall in probably over a dozen years. And, and even with the drought, I had plenty of food here this year. Um, so, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I, I've got the food good. I've got the cover good. I've got great screening for entry and exit. And I'm sure you guys are going to have questions about this. Yeah, because, yeah, that's, definitely. That's, uh, that's a huge subject. Um, I would, oh, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, you know, I go to a lot of different properties, help a lot of different landowners here in Michigan and in other states, and I will tell you, everybody struggles with entry and exit. Wow, really? And, uh, you know, and some properties uh, are easier to set up with entry and exit, and some properties are very challenging, especially when you get into hill country. Well, Jake, back on the hidden pinch coating, <clears throat> What do you think most guys do wrong as far as their first time attempting to hinge cut on a property? I'll tell you what they do wrong because I did it for <laughs> the first uh, 10 years I did it. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and I go to, I, I, was, I go to a number of properties and I was just at one, um, day was I there, middle of this week. A great guy, super neat fellow. He is so charged. He's, he's going to change his world now. But what they do uh, is they don't cut the large trees. They go in there with the, well, you know what, I'm, I'm not comfortable cutting big trees. And, and I get that. that that's a, I'm telling you, cutting big trees, especially trees that aren't perfectly straight, uh, you, you should get help. And yeah. someone that understands or either you should be uh, uh, practice enough, you know, uh, cut enough trees where you're confident. And I'll tell you what happens. You, you go in and you cut, let's say, I, when I use the term medium to small trees, you're cutting trees that are 10 inches in diameter down to 4 inches, and you're hinge cutting. And you do create this incredible horizontal cover in that area, and it just looks awesome, and it greens up, and the deer are in there. And what happens is you've opened up the canopy probably 15 to 20%. You've left the big trees. The big trees are going to close that sunlight off in about three to five years. And then most of the hinge cuts are going to die. And then you're going to walk in there and go, and you're not going to have the constant early successional growth you should have because these big trees are still there and they're just growing too many leaves and they're shading it out. So when you finally decide, okay, i got to go in here and do this work, you got to dump these big trees, and guess what's going to happen? It's going to crush everything you did. Ah, so yeah. you should be cut yeah. first, is what you're saying. So what I can tell you, there's a progression. And the first thing you do, if you're going to, I mean, if you're looking at an area and say it's, whether it's a half acre, quarter acre, uh, everybody's got their different reasons and locations and high spots and low spots and ridges. But wherever you're going to attempt it, if there, if, say, if 25% of the trees are 18 to 30 inch diameter, those got to come down. Now, you may decide to leave three or four of those straight, beautiful-looking oaks, and those be mother trees, and, and I do leave my mother tree, uh, you know, nice and healthy. But if I've got one that's crooked and it's been hit by lightning and three or four of the big limbs 20 and 30 feet up are losing bark and are old and the woodpeckers are pecking on them, you can see this tree is in trouble. Uh, so, you know, that tree's got to get cut and it's got to lay down. It's the best thing that can happen because now you've got a tree top to work with, so I notch and fall a lot of these larger trees because most of these big trees you can't successfully hinge cut. I mean, you're talking about 
tons coming down. I, you got have you guys cut big trees before? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah you're okay. you're not getting it to lay down on a nice edge yeah. when you're dealing with that. And you know how, how that baby comes down with a thud and it shakes the ground, right? <laughs> My wife loves that, by the way. <laughs> she loves to hear a big tree hit the ground. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, that's that's just the mechanics of it. These are big trees, so... Um, I go in there and, and, and suggest to all my clients to cut those big trees and, and teach them how to recognize the trees that you should save because you got to have something growing for the next 10 or 15 years producing all the regeneration. Uh, I mean, there, there's a, I mean, there's an incredible seed bank or seed bed in the ground waiting to come up when you let sunlight hit that ground. But five years from now, you know, you should have some acorns, you should have some others. There's got to be seeds. There's got to be something that, bring, that brings that continued uh, early succession and regeneration up in those areas. So uh, I, I do pick uh, some of the, you know, some of the nicer, larger oaks, especially the white oaks. Cause that's your preferred browse species, you know, for, for acorns. And uh, and I leave those, but then I, I knock everything else down. And uh, the hinge cutting I did two years ago where I ended up killing this year's buck, which I named him Brutus because he was just such a man. This, I got a picture of him in turkey season, and, and it looked like this deer was on steroids, okay? Jeez. Just his, neck, his neck and shoulder and his head was all muscular, okay? And, and the can, and they literally looked like, like uh, Pepsi cans coming out of the top of his head about three inches tall. Holy cow. And, and I'd known this deer. You know, he, he, he was a... Uh, he was pretty random, although I would consistently get pictures. He was he was a random movement kind of deer, but once the rut would hit, I knew he was he was just all in. It was how he was the last few years. Uh, but I, I worked real hard for two years on a hinge cutting, and, and I and I developed a setup with a with a barrier, and, a, and I, I put about a thirty five to forty yard gap between the barrier and the hinge cutting. And my whole process for hunting that day had a lot to do with uh, the wind direction, it was a post-cold front, day after a cold front, and it was also high pressure, and I'm sure you guys hear a lot about that. You know, there's uh, Jeff Sturgis is another fella who's in the land mm-hmm. management business, and he, he continually talks about cold fronts in October and November, and uh, I'm right there with it because uh, so it was day after cold front, high pressure, and then uh, the moon position was also in the right position for that day on November 8th and I had you know and I was uh, disciplined enough to never go into that stand until that morning and so when I slipped into that stand I mean you know he showed I mean you know it was a great hunt and and a lot went on and and at one time I had seven bucks up in front of me how many and that hinge cut seven oh wow yeah at one time I, I remember counting seven different bucks I could see and uh, it was just uh, it was just nuts watching all the different types of activity. There was scraping. There were bucks working scrapes. There were bucks making rubs. There were bucks chasing other bucks, chasing does. And there was a, uh, there were two shooters. And the one I killed, and then another one I saw. And that could have been the one I passed in uh, muzzleloader season. I couldn't see him real well because he was he was in the hinge cut pushing this doe, and he just wasn't leaving. He was diving into this thick brush. But the coolest thing about this whole hunt was uh, I, I put a lot of time into this hinge cut, and I spent two years on and off working it, developing it, finally set the stand in August. And uh, 
everything was set up for a number of conditions to all come together. So I kept waiting for those conditions. And and prior to those conditions, I, I, I set game cameras on some specific scrape areas I have, and I used those scrapes to let me know when that particular buck was now moving during daylight. And I, I had actually pulled my cards on Saturday before that Wednesday, and I had pictures, I had three different pictures of that buck on two different scrapes within about 80 yards of where I killed him. And uh, two of those uh, scrape pictures, one was about 10 minutes after daylight in the morning, and the other one was about 10 or 15 minutes before dark, so I knew he was starting to move around during daylight. And then the conditions were right, and I went in there, and, uh, and it was just, you know, <laughs> it's great what a plan works, because a lot of times it doesn't, as you guys probably know. Oh, yeah, uh, like most of the time. <laughs> you know, and what I can tell you is uh, you probably don't know, I don't know how much you know about moon position. Um, I don't and, know enough yet. I've heard it. You know, on multiple podcasts and shows, and I know the Drury's talk about yep. it a little bit, but um, I don't specifically hunt by it quite yet. Um, go ahead and, and say something. And, and and let, let me say this. When it's the rut, and especially when it's the rut, and you've got four or five days, you hunt every one of those days, okay? You do. Because anything can happen during a rut. That's the coolest thing about the rut. You know, it can be... It can be so dead you're almost falling asleep, and all of a sudden you hear a stick break and a grunt, man, the world's changing, you know. So uh, uh, the thing about the moon position is it's it's not an end-all, but when the moon position is during the times of the day that deer do not, so let me say, let me back up. When the moon position is favorable, and there's two, there's two locations in the sky that the moon is favorable, and that's, that's directly overhead or directly underneath, so that would be 12 o'clock or 6 o'clock, and that's called moon major, or on the horizon, and that's called uh, moon minor. So that would be a setting moon or a rising moon. So those are the two times I pay attention to. Now, deer are, are precuspular creatures, uh, meaning they move a lot naturally during that last hour of daylight and that first hour of daylight. Right. So if, so if the moon positions are right, during that first hour and last hour of daylight, you're not going to notice. You're going to be hunting anyway, right? right? So let's say it's about 11.30 in the morning when most guys are completely out of their tree stands and have come home and, have, and are on their second cup of coffee, okay? Because they've been out there since daylight and they froze and they didn't see anything move. And, and this hunt that I went on on November 8th was textbook for that. Um, I knew we had a setting moon at about 11.30 that day. So I told my wife the night before, I said, I probably won't be home till at least one or two o'clock. So I said, we've got a, we've got a midday moon and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hunt both sides of it, meaning an hour before that moon position and the hour after that moon position, I want to be in my seat. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the truth is I killed that deer at 11.05. What? Wow. And, uh, yeah. Um, and what I say is I got in the stand and uh, at that time of the year, I've kind of changed how I enter my, my stand. I wait until it's daylight. I used to go in, you know, an hour, you know, an hour or 45 minutes before daylight, and I bump. I got a lot of good food. I got great cover. Um, I've got some really good switchgrass, 12 acres of switchgrass around the house up here. Uh, so I've just found that waiting till right at daylight, these guys think I can 
pretty much walk back and get into my rut stands. This, these are stands that are going to be very close to bedding here. And I can usually get in and not bump deer, and I was lucky and I did that. I got all the way in because there's so much pressure at that time of the year with these bucks pushing these does around that they're out in these big open fields trying to get away from them. And so I was able to flip through my cover right down my spruce. And I got, you know, Norway spruces now that are 25, 30 feet tall and are planted on a 10-foot center. So I got a wall of green and I can walk right by a food plot and the deer don't even see me. Okay. That's awesome. And, and so, so I get into these, these, uh, I get into my stand and it has, you know, and I bring camera equipment, a whole bunch of other stuff, a big fanny pack. And I'm, you know, I, I bring food and water. I'm there to hunt till two o'clock, you know. And uh, it just gets daylight, and I hear a deer running, and right behind it, I hear a front. Here comes a doe running 90 miles an hour, and there's a little year and a half old right behind her. You know, which is pretty typical, what you're going to see that first 15, 20 minutes of daylight on November 8th. And it settled down a little bit, and I saw one more doe and one more young buck. And then, I mean, the woods was just dead quiet. I mean, it was I had turkeys all over the place, and there were squirrels and, the, uh, you know, some, uh, I think I saw a mink and, and a couple other things like that. But, I mean, it was just dead, and, and I was just so confident. I was like, yeah, I'm just waiting until 11 o'clock, you know, <laughs> waiting until 11. And, and this is the honest truth, because uh, I, I do bring a watch, and actually it's, it's, uh, it's tied to my fanny pack, so I can just keep track of the time, you know, and I keep track of the time. Because I won't wear a watch band, because I'm a real scent control guy, and I don't believe in having any of that on. There you go. Uh, and we'll get into scent control if you want to get into that. But the coolest thing was, it was 20 minutes to 11. <laughs> And all of a sudden, the woods was alive with deer. So I was 30 minutes from uh, from a setting moon, and the the woods was just full of deer. And I think between the time I killed that deer, um, I saw about 11 different antlered bucks, and I think I uh, probably saw at least 15 or 20 antlerless deer. And they were all right in front of me, and I probably could have killed all but three or four of those deer with a bow. Wow. So the and, 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 story is pay attention to the moon if you're not yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I could say is if, if, I, if I'd if i have been just a typical rut hunter that didn't know about the position of the moon, I probably would have hunted till about 10, 10, 20 and said, man, this morning's dead. There's just, I can't believe it. Nothing's yeah. moving. And I'd have climbed down because yeah. I've been there since 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, right? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's a yeah. that's an awesome story, Jake. That's yeah. that's. I want to see a picture of that deer. I gotta say, I, I I must have from Facebook, but it's not ringing a bell. Um, I'll have to look it yeah, up sure. and check it out. He, he's, yeah, if you go to my Facebook, you'll see on November eighth when I killed him. He's just really super nice. He's yeah. got eleven inch G twos on. You know. Yeah, he, I have uh, seen that picture. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he was another real big deer. You know, it's just I'm just so blessed to. Uh, but I hunt hard and. And try and try to get to that point. So you can tell I'm pretty passionate about this stuff. Well, definitely, so. definitely. Um, and you know, something about Jesse and I, we're we're pretty green in the habitat side of things. We've done food plots for a couple of years, and and you know things like that. But just something so interesting about being able to uh, you know manipulate your land a little bit and watch the deer come oh, and is. move a certain <laughs> way. And like you said, you worked on that hinge cut for. For two years, I mean, that I don't even know what two years of working on one hinge cut is, or you know what that even means. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean I was in there every weekend. No, I hear you. But it probably means at least ten or twelve weekends I worked on that wow. area. Wow. And and uh, 
so you know, you were asking me some questions about mistakes that people make, and uh, I, I can tell you uh, my whole philosophy about a property and, and a, a proper habitat property, and then how can you hunt it? You know, because we can create great habitat, but you can make it so good you can't hunt it. Okay, because if you're not careful, you'll get random movement, instead of predictable movement. I've been down that road, and I've had to get rid of food plots because I put them in the wrong place, and I had to get rid of bedding areas because the bedding areas are close to where I walk, and that's always jumping deer. Yeah. So, so my whole philosophy is I have 11 acres of food that I grow for deer, and that's not including food that grows in bedding areas because I do that too, you know, and I consider early successional growth all new trees and shrubs and forbs that, that are stimulated and come out of the ground because of the increased sunlight, that's deer food, okay? But then this I have is on your 68 plot. acres? Yep, that's all. So on that 68 acres, I also plant 11 acres of real food, and that will be soybeans, brassicas, turnips, uh, groundhog radishes, clover, chicory, uh, winter rye, sugar beets, you name it. I put in a, just a, a vast diversity of food. Really? And, uh, yeah. And what I can tell you, I have one stand on a food plot because I don't believe in hunting food plots. <laughs> it's, it's great as often as you see it on TV. Yeah. Okay. They're not from and, Michigan. <laughs> yeah. And we're from Michigan. We don't do that. And, and you know, and, and there might be some guys listening, start to chuckle, and I'll, I'll fill it in to where it'll make sense. Um, you can hunt food plots. You can kill deer on them. But my overall plan, I'm trying to kill the top 5 or 2%, the top 2% of the antlered bucks on this property. And they are not forgiving. So if you hunt your food plots and you don't kill that buck the first time you go in there, and then you hunt it maybe within a week, maybe 10 days later, and you don't see him, you know, and now you hunt it again, so now you have an accumulated effect, and you've reduced the the, uh, the frequency of deer utilizing that food during daylight. Well, why would you do that? That's the whole reason you planted it. <laughs> That's true. So, so my goal is, in an afternoon hunt, hunt close enough to the food, but far enough away to not be on it. So I try to catch them in transition areas I can access pretty easy. And then in the mornings, if I'm ever going to hunt a morning, it will be right up on top of the bedding areas or in a tight pinch or a funnel or a transition zone uh, between food or bedding or between two bedding areas. And uh, I've completely, absolutely changed everything about how I hunt to where I just do not hunt the mornings at all anymore in October. I, I just, I, I just, and, yeah, and this property, I mean, if you saw it, and, and, and maybe someday I'd love to have you guys out here. Um, and when you see how the food is, I, I got a lot of food, and I just can't get back to these areas without bumping deer, especially in the morning. Uh, and in the evenings, I got some, some pretty simple stands that I can get into real easy. So I have some observation stands, doe killing stands, and then I have my rut stand. Okay, so that, that actually brings up an, a quick question. Um, real quick. Would you say your food is more on the outskirts and your cover is in the middle, or is it the opposite, where your cover is on the outskirts and your food is in the middle, or um, or neither? You know, um, 
it's a combination of both, if you saw the layout, because all properties, and this property started with some difficult situations to deal with, and I have tried to fix it the best I can. Okay. Um, you, you guys know about destination plots, right? Correct. And, and, and that will be a large, that's a large plot. The goal is to produce tonnage of food. And so I have two large destination food plots. And one runs about 1,200 feet long, okay? Oh, wow. Wow. And it, it literally goes from uh, probably from 50 yards or 30 yards of my west property border to within about 80 yards of my east property border. And it winds and goes up and down over a hill and a couple of little valleys. And it is predominantly... Uh, Roundup ready soybeans, some alfalfa, some clover and chicory, and, and things like that. I, I, I you know, I, 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 I change it up from spot to spot. But these are large food plots, and I never hunt them. And that's all about keeping the deer going to that food. Then, if you step back from those large food plots, which are outside of my wood, okay, my, my hardwood, and if you go. 40 to 60 yards deeper into the edges of the woods, and these woods don't have perfectly straight lines, and I have these small micro food plots. And these small micro plots are now within 50 to 60 yards of the bedding area, and these are the first places the deer arrive as they head to those destination food plots in the evening. Now, this is an evening movement pattern. And how how big are these micro plots, would you say, ish? Oh, and these, these plots are tiny. They are literally... Um, 50 to 60 feet long by 30 to 50 feet wide. Oh, wow. You know, a tenth of an acre. Yep. Yep. Not very big at all. And uh, and so I use those. They're pretty much a staging area for deer because as the deer are, are leaving the cover, the security of their bedding areas and the security of the woods, and especially in early October, um, they're, they're pretty slow and methodical about leaving the security and standing and looking, so they come up on that small little food plot, and there's, you know, there's trail systems, and I've, and I've got hinge cuttings all around them, and sorghum, and the campus grass, so they're, even if they're in these little food plots, they're one jump in the right and cover, okay? So they, they, uh, they approach these plots pretty, uh, pretty nonchalantly, okay, as far as the does and the fawns do, but, you know, these big bucks, uh, when you start getting four and five year old Michigan bucks, and and you guys understand a Michigan buck, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Lord, yeah. walking up and walking backwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> a four, four and a five year old. That's uh, I haven't seen too many of those in Michigan. You know, um, they, they they are rare, but they they can happen. Uh, but anyway, because they are so sensitive in early October until the rut gets going, there's just a lot that can happen that we as hunters do to damage our property so that when the so when it is November 8th, you've screwed it up, okay? And so uh, a combination of, of great bedding, multiple bedding locations for does and doe family groups, isolated bedding areas for bucks so that they can bed individually during the rut because that's the time of the year they don't like each other. You know, in the summer, they're in, they're in bachelor groups, and they're licking each other's faces and, and necks and ears, but they're not like that in November. So they, so these bucks have to have isolated bedding areas that they can bed and be comfortable and keep track of their competition and keep track of the doe groups. And uh, then you've got to have great feeding areas and socialization areas where the bucks scrape and they rub and they can show off to the girls and show off to the younger bucks. And so they're, they're so... 
there's a lot of diversity in habitat that need to be all brought together on a property. And the smaller the property, the more condensed those habitats will be. And as great as it is, and I've helped some clients with less than 20 acres who've got properties just as good as mine, uh, you right. concentrate deer you, you end up concentrating deer activity, which means you as a hunter really have to be on your agent. Uh, I mean, you got it. You get. You have to learn how to get your scent control really good. Uh, you have to really think about when do I hunt, how do I hunt, where do I hunt. Yeah. And once that once that happens, I mean, everything's fantastic. But you know, we're we're creatures of habit, and uh, we learn the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I just laugh because I can tell you I've made so many mistakes in my life, and I've screwed up on some incredibly big deer doing the stupidest thing. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'd love to do a podcast where I tell you about some of the biggest bucks of my life, which I have on video that I screwed up. Okay. Well, careful. Oh, yeah, we, careful, Jake. I might hold you to that. <laughs> you know, I tell you, I've done the stupid. You know, and it's amazing what a big deer does. You know, you can shoot at a target all day, and you can, yeah. you can mentally have yourself tuned in, and then crazy red activity takes place, and it's like, you know, uh, you don't, you, you can't even tell your best friend where that arrow was headed. I got no idea where. You black out during the whole thing. Exactly. You know, I swear, you know, it's, it's so cool. Uh, but now, Jake, why, uh, you know, you're talking about your variety of food, and you know. When we talk to most property owners, they usually have one, two, maybe types of food. And why do you have so many, or how, why do you have so much variety on your farm? Well, it, when, if you pay attention, uh, every habitat client that hires me, um, I've really gotten my system down now. And I bring a CD that's just packed full of information. I print out a lot of documents. And one of the things I tell them, is the more you know about a deer's biology and physiology, the better habitat manager you're going to be. You know, there are so many different types of food that mature at different rates and at different times of the year. So they're palatable at a certain time of the year and not palatable at other times of the year. So that's where diversity comes in. I want palatable and attractive food 12 months out of the year. Okay, which makes sense. Which is difficult to do because when we get into January through uh, late February, uh, look at this year, you know, cold, crappy winter, lots of snow. It's pretty hard, you know, so I count a lot on on, uh, early successional growth and woody browns is what I count on. Because, you know, when you got two feet of snow, it's pretty hard to have great food plots because even though it's there, it's extremely hard for the deer to dig through it and get to it. And even though they, you know, they hate it down to nothing back in uh, January anyway, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, so, th- so that's why I have, that is my uh, reason for why I so strongly believe in multiple varieties and diversity in food. Does, does, that, uh, does that answer your question, Jesse? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of what I thought. Um, yeah. But I just kind of wanted to get your two cents and, in it. And, um, and um, okay. Oh, no, sorry. Go ahead. I'll just follow up with one thing. Uh, Anybody who's watched a lot of deer and developed a property, uh, especially if you've uh, been lucky enough to to make changes and add food plots, you'll find that uh, as you offer more food, you've got got more deer, okay? And what you're going to quickly end up with is multiple doe family groups. 
And doe family groups are typically fairly competitive to one another. And I'm sure you, you know, uh, you've had game cameras out there and you've gotten pictures of does on their hind legs swatting each other with their front legs. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen it, but I mean, that's, that's a pretty typical. And when you see that going on, that, that is a competition between the deer. It is, it is a stressful environment being created. One deer doesn't like the other one. And, uh, you know, and they're standing up for each other. So if you can produce uh, multiple feeding locations, multiple security and bedding locations, you can spread those deer out so they are they all are not converging into one ideal feeding habitat and trying to compete for it all at the same time. So you do so that with different different locations. Yep, different locations and, di- and yeah, and different varieties of food. Okay. So. Uh, you know, I mean, I, maybe you, you guys could ask me or, you know, if you want to say, hey, what food do you grow? Uh, which, what's your best one? What do you have the best luck with? Um, well, you know, I, yeah, I was curious about that. You mentioned, like, 12 different varieties. Those aren't all separate plots, right? You're combining. Right, right. Like, yep. like I'll do, like, uh, sometimes, like, a oats and peas and maybe winter rye or something like that. and keep it at three do you do like two or three or do you do like six or seven varieties in one plot oh sometimes i i go kind of nuts <laughs> uh, there, there, there are years that i'll plant uh roundup ready soybeans and roundup ready corn to death okay, okay. That and, good. and i cut way back on my corn so truly it's going to be 30 percent corn and 70 percent soybean because mm-hmm. if your corn gets very thick your soybeans don't do very well yeah but but i've been real successful doing that and so, you know, to be in that the Roundup Ready product, um, I'm going to go in there twice a year and spray and kill off the wheat. So that means underneath the corn and underneath that canopy of leaves and the, and the soybeans, that ground is bare, no weeds and grasses growing. So I can walk into those fields in late to mid-August with a hand broadcast, and I can put crimson clover, brassicas, purple top turnips. I can put winter rye, oats. Winter wheat, um, I, I can just you name it. I can throw it in there if it's if it's a fall annual, okay. And I will go completely through these plots. And the greatest thing is, if you if you guys have hunted any soybean fields, and I'm sure you have, because uh, yep. you know, I mean, I, I can't think of a Michigan guy that hasn't started out hunting on the edge of a farmer's field oh, yeah. and watching those because you've been watching those deer coming into those fields every night in September. And then you get a frost in October, and the fields are brown, and you go out there one night, and there's no deer, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so a transition happens. Those deer move off of that because it's no longer palatable and uh, full of moisture like it used to be. And typically, they shift from that eating zone into other locations on that uh, within that area. And normally, you've got an acorn crop, crop dropping at that time, usually red oaks and white oaks. So typically deer shift to the oaks. Well, what I do is I put uh, cool season annuals in these uh, soybean plots and, and soybean and corn sometimes. And so now I've got three feet of soybeans turning brown, and the bottom foot is green, full of lush crimson clover, winter rye, winter wheat, and it's got brassicas, dwarf Essex rape, uh, you name it, it's in there and it is germinated. So now these deer continue to come into that field. They pay no attention to the, the dry brown soybeans. Now they got their heads down low and they're just pulling up all the green. It's a great so, idea. 
So for me, that is a great way to uh, still – it keeps my pattern. You know, I, my whole philosophy about hunting is and when I first started is this food to uh, – uh, bedding to feed and then feed back to bedding. So I want to know where these deer are going, where the, where the doe groups are going, and then, you know, the bucks eventually follow them. But usually in, in October, those mature bucks really don't arrive at that large, you know, an acre or larger food plot until it's just about too dark to shoot. <laughs> so, right. They, they, they just who they are. Um, but uh, now, that's now, kind Jake, of my... Go ahead. When, when, you're, when you're putting that many... Um, different varieties in one plot. Does that mess with the pH or soil levels at all? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, there are some things you can do that can absolutely go to your benefit. Uh, Roundup Ready soybeans are legume, and so legumes produce their own nitrogen. And soybeans are are well known for producing high amounts of nitrogen. And and any typical rotating crop farmer will often go two years of soybeans and then follow it up with a year of corn because corn is it really loves nitrogen and often they don't have to uh, fertilize near as much for that one year of corn because of their soybeans yep so so if you're uh if you plant say just roundup ready soybeans you don't even mix the corn in with and you've grown that and then you come back and you put the brassicas and the turnips and the crimson clover and uh, anything, any clover will also produce nitrogen, but your brassicas and turnips will eat nitrogen. But they also will produce phosphorus and potassium, which your soybeans love. So you'll find that by doing that, it's, uh, and it's always putting organic matter back into the soil for you as well, okay? Leaf matter, root matter, whatever the deer don't eat or the deer eat it, poop it right back out, right back out into the into the field that they're eating, and then you've got the stems of the soybeans, you know, that they didn't eat. So you're ultimately putting some organic matter, which has uh, a lot of trace elements, back into the soil. So it seldom bothers your pH unless you've got a really, say, like a gravelly, sandy soil that leaches out real fast. I happen to have a, a heavy clay here, which is just the opposite of that spectrum, you know, uh, if I fertilize in lime, it takes a long time for it to benefit the plants, but then it stays there for quite a while. Um, okay. But I kind of become a bit of a, I don't hate to use this word because everybody overuses it, kind of an organic farmer when it comes to uh, <laughs> food plots because I'm, I'm trying to grow a lot of plants that benefit each other. And so I reduce my, my fertilization. So I'm not using a lot of fertilizer. I test my soils a lot, and uh, um, I tested last year, and it was a little bit light. And so my goal this spring is I'm going to bring in some lime and, and uh, hit hit the lime in the areas that really need it. I've got three fields that need it. One's just fine, doesn't need it. And uh, then I've got, you know, my perennial plots, which is going to be your clovers and chicories. And I've also got some uh, New Zealand uh, alfalfa. And the reason I use that term New Zealand, it was just developed in New Zealand for the sheep industry. So it's, it's not real tough and stemmy like some of the uh, alfalfa here that a lot of farmers grow for their cattle. And so I, I have that growing. And then I have a lot of warm season grasses, uh, which is an incredible habitat for deer. It creates edge. And then I've got all these hinge cuttings and uh, thick, early successional growth. And, and even inside of the hinge cuttings, 
I, some of these clearings, I go in and I take a backpack sprayer and I kill the vegetation, and I come back and I overseed it with chicory and clover, and I grow chicory and clover in these bedding areas. Wow. So, uh, is that pretty shady, or is that because the canopy's open now? You have some good sun yeah, in there. Yeah, the, can, the canopy's open. I got sun in there, and it's coming in good, and, and, and a lot of grasses and, and raspberries and things that have never grown in there pop up that first year. So I, I, you know, my hinge cuttings are typically done this time of the year or sooner. So I usually wait till after the fawns are up and moving around about mid to late July, and I'll go into those areas and just see how, you know, how aggressively are things growing. And sometimes it's absolutely shocking. It can be five feet tall. You're like, holy smokes. Okay. There was nothing. I mean, there were the park effect woods, and there wasn't a stem anywhere, but there was a bunch of big hickories and oaks. And now it's just five foot jungle. You know. Mm-hmm. So I'm in there with a with a weed eater, and I walk behind brush hog, and I'm, and I'm mowing down all the vegetation, some of the small saplings. I come back a week later, and I spray everything with uh, glyphosate, you know, a non-selective herbicide. And then I'll come back maybe a week after that, or or maybe as quick as two or three days, and I'll overseed with this chicory and clover mix. And uh, there's actually a blend out there that a fellow that I know real well in the food plot business developed, and he calls it seclusion. And that would be uh, a guy by the name of John Cop from Northwoods uh, Whitetails. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah he's that. a super good guy. And, and I actually told him what I was doing. I shared that with him. And I said, you know what? And it's a 60% chicory, 40% clover. So it's very heavy on the chicory. And you won't find anybody that sells a blend that has that much chicory in it. Because chicory is an expensive seed. Yeah, it is. But if you do that in the right locations where does and bucks are spending their time, and then you think about what happens in the fall. We go through what's called the brown down, and that's when we start getting hard frost and everything that was green turns brown. So that first week of November, when there's a lot of stress on the bucks and, and there's starting to be some pretty good stress on the does, these bedding areas have one foot tall of the most lush clover and chicory you ever saw. Wow. And until you sat there and in your tree stand 22 feet up and watched all those deer go in and out of there working <laughs> licking branches and chasing each other, then you're going to know that you're doing it right. I might have <laughs> to uh, incorporate that this year, Jake. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, every once in a while I will put stuff like that on, on Facebook and share. I've got a pretty cool diagram that I've made out. It's kind of a plan view looking down on top of a hinge cut and the, the opening that's in the center and at least three or four entry and exit that deer can utilize going in and out of those hinge cuts where the clover and chicory is planted. And I'll tell you, out of all the things I've done, and and I'm just a big believer, you've got to constantly cut your trees and you've got to get that early successional growth. And as great as early successional growth is, you know, which is stem density and, and young plants, eventually it gets so tall that the deer can't reach it. And that means you got to go back in there and cut again. Okay. So about it. About every seven to ten years, you're going back into your hinge cuttings and, and really reworking them. Okay. Uh, but uh, now, now that so, diagram you mentioned is that you said that's on your Facebook? It's on there somewhere. You'd have, it, I know I've I've posted it before, but it might take you uh, a long time to find it. That's okay. okay. That sounds like something I could uh, maybe. But put it, on it, it is there, you know, and and I don't know. You can, I, I think know, I found it. On uh, August 1st, if you go through your photos. Oh, cool. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, that might be it. So, uh, 
Uh, good. So cool. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you looked it up. So th- that's one of several things. And, again, you know, uh, I think people sometimes uh, don't realize the simplest things you can do. I mean, you, maybe you're, you're, you've got neighbor problems and you've got uh, – you really – you know, these deer are so random – it's amazing what you can do to steer deer and how you can convince deer to be where you want them uh, without them knowing it. It's too late when they do know it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and I do it with macanthus grass and with uh, sorghum. Okay, um, yeah, let's, let's talk about that real quick. Is, is that like your type of screen, or are you creating an edge there when, you, when you're using that? Or dive into that a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, um, there's a... a a lot of, I would say, ten years ago, uh, it came. Uh, people started using it around food plots. It was a plot screen, and it, it typically went by the name of Egyptian wheat. Correct. Okay. And uh, then there were. Uh, it seemed like everybody, his brother, in the food plot industry, got into it, and a lot of it had, had it was an Egyptian wheat and or a Sudan grass sorghum mix, and they're very similar. Um. And uh, some of those just uh, are not very robust, and a little bit of wind and, and a little bit of sleet and snow bends right over, and, and you know, and they're annuals. Those are annual products. You, you plant them in the spring, they come up, they grow real fast, uh, they frost, they turn brown, they start getting weak. So you know, they're very good during the summer, and then they're early uh, all the way through the rut. But after that, you kind of lose your effectiveness. Uh, there's some new hybrid sorghums out there that get as big around as corn, are really stiff, and, man, I mean, they get you all the way through now. I mean, my my sorghum stand is still four or five feet tall right now. Really? And what, and are, so, those, what so, are those sorghums called, if you don't mind? Well, that, it's just called a hybrid sorghum. Hybrid and sorghum. And I don't okay. know the variety, but, again, uh, John Comp from Northwoods Whitetail, yeah. he sells it. Okay. And, uh, okay. I've, I've tested a few of them for him, and so... You can use it to, let's say you've got a pretty nice food plot, but one side of it is wide open to an ag field or wide open to a road. Then you can use it to basically screen that road, screen the edge of that ag field, screen where you walk, okay? I mean, let's face it, sometimes you want to get by that food plot. And if you take your time and the wind is right, if they can't see you, then you're going to get by. And uh, so... Not only can you use it for that, you can actually use it to create edge or multiple edges. You can put designs into these fields. Um, if you look onto my uh, Habitat Solutions Facebook page, you'll see a, a post I put in there sometime in the last, oh, four months, and it shows us about a 100-yard finger of hybrid sorghum that I brought out through this field, and I stopped it 20 yards from a switchgrass corner and then i have a hay bale blind in the edge of the switchgrass and all the deer have to walk and and, and every deer walks by the end of that circle so you like even you though you it's a large off, kind of yeah and it pitches them off nice. and i've got the most incredible video i put my browning camera right on my hay bale blind and i've got two seriously nice bucks walking through that gap okay wow. i mean yeah really really good deer and uh, and I will put a camera on there, and during the rut, I can leave a camera there for two weeks, and I'll have like eight thousand pictures. Wow! Yeah, you, you created your own it, it, funnel or your own pinch yeah, point so, with a field. 
Yes, so it is amazing what you can do with, so, you know, a lot of people are listening to this, like, geez, I don't have trees. Right. I don't have a wood. You know, what's this hinge cutting? It doesn't do anything for me. Well, there's so much more you can do, uh, whether it be uh, the annual sorghums or the uh, Egyptian wheat, or you can actually get into, uh, you know, switchgrass, uh, warm season grasses, doing it on a larger scale or do it, do it strips for screening. Or then there is uh, the other one that you heard me mention. It's called miscanthus grass, and that is a perennial, and you plant it uh, via rhizomes, which is they're kind of like bulbs, but they're long. You know, kind of kind of look like half of a pencil that you lay in the ground, and the shoots come up. And those grow, you know, ten, twelve feet tall, very bamboo reedish type of of a grass. And so you you know you would plant them on two foot centers, and in four years you've got this wall of green that. that turns brown in the fall, but it's the same thing. It does everything that sorghum or or uh, Egyptian wheat does, but it's a perennial. It's there every year. It doesn't die. That's awesome. Yeah, you don't, and you don't have to replant it, yeah. And you said it takes about so, four uh, years to grow up that tall enough to where... As far as that miscanthus grass, it can take up to four years. So okay. I, I've had pretty good... I've had it get pretty tall in two years. Okay. But, uh, um, but so I, I just want... Year, so that's awesome. I, I just want people to know that there are so many different things you can do. And, uh, you know, whether the tree, if the tree is 8 to eight to 12 feet tall and it's 2 to 4 inches in diameter, you can hinge them. You can hinge them low to create barriers. You can hinge them to create a screen. Uh, your larger trees, of course, it gets a little trickier because then directing the tree and in the direction it's going to fall has a lot to do with, the tree and how many limbs are on each side, if it's a big, heavy tree. But, I mean, there are just so many different things you can do. And, and then it's just uh, understanding how a deer moves and why they do what they do. And uh, probably a tidbit of information I can give you, uh, that probably for about the last 10 years, this is how I hunt. I, I set up all these incredible bedding areas. I have great food. But during the rut, I'm hunting the edges of these bedding areas on the downwind side of that bedding area because I know a three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half, or five-and-a-half-year-old buck is also going to be on the downwind side of that bedding area set-checking for any does that are in estrus. Yep. And that's exactly what uh, Brutus was doing. He was (laughs) set-checking for does that morning. And he came right through at about, I don't know, I'm going to say maybe 15 to 18 yards. And I stopped him broadside. And, uh, and watched him die about 40 yards away. So, uh, pretty cool. And then, of course, I shot, uh, you know, an awesome deer I killed uh, the year before that, and I called him Ruddy. Oh, yeah, I saw that uh, one. Yeah, and the coolest thing about that deer, you know, because I love to talk about, you know, I love habitat, but, you know, you continually hear people talk about the cull bucks, and that buck needs to be taken out of the herd. And, and Ruddy was, was the perfect example uh, he got his nickname Righty because uh, I didn't know this until older in life, but he he had a, had a normal right side and a screwed up left side. So when he was a year and a half, he had three or four points on his right side and a tiny little spike on his left side. And then when he was a two and a half year old, he went right into six points on his right side. And he had a uh, he had a little fork horn on his left with a couple of little tiny stickers on the base, and and so every year he, he kept getting a little better on his left side. And what it ultimately turned out is he had a pedicle injury. So 
you know, uh, there's a lot of hunters out there that would have seen that deer as a year and a half or a two and a half, so I got to take him out of the herd. Well, you're never going to know what a, why a deer looks the way he does and what he could be until you give him at least, I, I, you know, the biologists tell you give him till they're four and a half. And, uh, and I gave that deer till he was four and a half. I, I had him at ten yards when he was three and a half and passed him at three and a half at 10 yards, which I had never done 20 years ago. <laughs> no, and, and to your point, you can't control the genetics of a wild deer herd anyway, so if you're out there shooting cold, no, you cold bucks in a wild herd, you, I mean, yep. you're not doing it good anyway. So. Yeah, you can, you know, you can read, and, you know, and the, uh, the Quality Deer Management Association, a great organization, they put out a lot of articles. Uh, Facebook, you'll see those articles get reposted. Uh, you cannot affect the genetics of a wild herd at all. You know, if if I was a bazillionaire and was lucky enough to own 20,000 acres and put a 10-foot fence around it, over the years, if I had all kinds of help, I could probably have some sort of genetic impact. But uh, in the wild herd, we're never going to. And, and actually, I love that it's that way. Yeah, because me too. I do, because, you know, you, you see some deer that uh, uh, make huge, you know, they they twenty they add 20 inches from one year to a net. And then you get another deer, and you, you've got last year's pictures and this year's pictures, and he's pretty much the same. He hasn't added, you know, maybe three or four inches, or, he, or, or he's just the same as he was last year. And that's all good. I mean, I just like what Mother Nature does, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll take age over score any day. <laughs> I, I really will. Uh, you know, as far as my own... Yeah, my that's part of our intrigue, or all of us whitetail hunters, you know, that it's, they're all different. They don't oh. tell a story. That's We're all all obsessed with that so, part of it, I think. Yeah. Now, now, Jake, what are you doing right now in March as far as habitat work in Michigan? Well, I'm, I'll tell you, I am still doing uh, hinge cutting. I'm, I'm really defining all of my trails that deer use that enter and exit. Uh, some of these little bedrooms and the clearings I was talking about inside of these hinge sites. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm also working on screening. You know, this is a great time of the year to walk into the woods and see just how open it really is. Because right now the woods looks just like it does the first week in November. And that's when the rut's on. So, you know, yeah. when you're out there in the summertime and you're walking around and you're moving your stand, oh man, this, man, this is great. I'm, I'm hid here. And then you go out there in February and you look out and you see your stand from 50 yards away. You know, and, and, the, and the best stand you can have is the one you can't find. I mean, I'm a big believer in hiding stands. And I'd say that's probably another mistake I see. I, I walk onto a lot of properties and see stands that, uh, I mean, my gosh, they're right on top of deer trails. And, and you know, they're, uh, they're a single tree that's, Eight to ten inches in diameter, and you know how big a man is, you know. Yeah. And I just see a lot of misuse, you know. And these people are successful, as in they see some does, they see some button bucks, they see some year and a half old bucks. So in their opinion, well, I see some deer, and they don't see me, you know. And 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 if that's their goal, that's what they want to kill. More power to them. I don't want to take anything away from somebody. Right. But the guy that hires me. Uh, and, and wants to improve his habitat, and he also really wants to know how can I get to where, number one, my property is producing three-and-a-half-year-olds and older, and how can I tell them? And so, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, oftentimes I'm not their best friend. 
<laughs> the first thing I tell him is you got to start moving those stands. <laughs> you know, and you got to hide them. And I said, that is not the place for that stand. And here's where I would put it. And then, you know, when I walk around and I might find a, an oak tree 20 yards away off the trail and it's, and it's a, and it's a, it's two or three oaks coming out of one common stump. And I say, look at this tree. You can get in here. You can get your stand in here. You're not going to jump out. You're out of the deer's sight line. You know, so many people put their stands right in a deer's sight line. And all we got to do is drive down the freeways in Michigan <laughs> and look out across these farm fields and we see all the box blinds, you know, right out in the open. And then you often see, you know, it's, it's not that hard to see ladder stands and hang-on stands. Oh, yeah. I pick them off all just the time. As, just as, I pick them out all everywhere. Yep. And, uh, you know, I can just say that, uh, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be well hid. And so your access, you know, uh, I always look at those things and I go, okay, so the guy can get in there. How does he get out? You know, he's on this big, huge open field. You know, it's, it's, there's a dozen deer out there at night. How's he getting out of that stand without those deer knowing he's there? And, uh, so yeah, he's doing a lot of things that are, uh, going to create disappointment in his life. So right now you're, are you doing the screens with, with hinge cuts, I assume, not planting yeah, right now because yep. it's still pretty early? Yeah, there's, there's nothing you can plant right now. It's just, it's just still too early. Okay. You know, we, we, we need to wait until about uh, probably uh, you're, you're really looking realistically. Now, there's a frost seeding technique, which is a completely different technique. But if you're truly planting, which is you're, you're disking or rototilling soil, if you're, if you're using that process, you're probably no earlier than the middle of May. It's, it's all about soil temperature. And then when are we going to get a frost? Right. You know, we often get a we often get a, a late frost in, into late, sometimes you know, uh, late May. So I don't plant any of my soybeans or anything like that until about uh, Memorial Day weekend. That's pretty much my. I usually take three or four days off because I plant eleven acres of it. Yeah, that takes you a while. Shoot, that <laughs> takes a while, and, and uh, so I still do it the conventional broadcast and, and uh, disking and smoothing and culpa packing and. I've been threatening to buy a drill, and, and uh, maybe I'll do that this year. But uh, uh, Well, now, Jake, when you do your hinge cutting this time of year, um, do you already have trees marked? Maybe you marked in the summer last year, or so when you go into your property, you know, okay, <clears throat> these are the trees that I'm going to focus on. Well, you know, I, I have an area I want to work. But I don't mark my trees because, I mean, there's so many trees. And until you get in there and you, you actually start putting a saw on a tree and, and things start coming down, um, it is not an exact science. And, and, I, and I run into a lot of people that worry about, oh, geez, I put these down and they're not going right and these don't go left. What am I going to do? Well, you got a chainsaw on your hand. If you make a mess and you cut a deer trail off, you can cut a hole in there and let them deer go through there, you know. And I know it, it sounds... It sounds simple, um, but it's, it, it is the truth. You know, it's uh, you know a lot of times I I draw these beautiful layouts for people, and you know my my business uh, was built through the these very detailed plans that I would write with all the photographs of the of the property on there, and I did these really nice hand drawn layouts that showed it the location of every stand and the location of the hinge cuts and the screening and the barriers and the food plots. I mean, they are excellent plans. I mean, they're the greatest thing for someone to work with. But I would often have phone conversations with these guys, and they'd say, you know, I might be about 20 yards down that ridge farther than you've got it drawn here. And I go, 
you know, I don't care if it's 50 yards, you know, when these trees start tipping and then sometimes they get hung up, you know, I don't know if you guys have personally done much hinge cutting, uh, but sometimes, sometimes trees do not go, even though they're leaning 30 degrees to the right, they just don't go that way when you're hinging them. Things happen, maybe, maybe you're not as experienced hinge cutting, you don't realize that the meat that you've left on the tree is going to tend to make it pull farther into that tree that was standing up that you thought it was going to miss. And so a lot of things happen, you know. Hmm. And uh, the biggest thing you should probably do is just get in there and get those trees down and get that sunlight to the ground and start uh, trying to build that early successional growth. And then you're going to have that automatic side cover. You're going to have some overhead cover. Uh, If you've done any, spent much time looking at my Facebook page, You'll see I put a lot of pictures on the in the because in the winter time is how you can verify it. Walk in, I can take pictures of the deer beds right in the hinge cuts, and you can see these deer laying right in there, you know, and uh, and they just love it. And there's nothing better than walking in and finding a big shed laying right in that bed. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. that one you found, Jesse. Do you see that one he found yet on his Facebook page? Yeah, yeah, I just saw it a little bit ago. I mean, what a giant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Says you're doing something right there, Jake. That's uh... yeah. But you know, it's uh, it, now as as you guys know, finding sheds in Michigan is not an easy. You know, they just aren't near as many bucks. Yep. And uh, I've I've been blessed to I've been traveling to Missouri about ten years now, eight to ten years, with some long term clients. And uh, one of the greatest things I get out of going to places like Missouri and Iowa is being able to get on habitats where multiple four, five, six, and eight-year-old bucks live and mm. see where, and and to be able to, in my mind, I mean, it, I, it literally goes into my computer and gets locked into that file, and, and I see how that buck acted, where he was bedding, the rubs he was making, the scrapes he was making, and this is where we found that big shed, and by the way, the biggest shed I ever found was in Kansas, and uh, it, it was over 100 inches, and it was one side. Wow! Jeez. Yeah. Wow! Jeez. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And I and I probably have picked up a lot of sheds in the Missouri and Illinois uh, area that would probably be in that ninety, you know, eighty-five to ninety-inch range. Uh, I can't tell you how many. And and I've been with guys where we could, you know, like your UTVs, and they've got that little pickup box in the back. We we filled the, you know, literally filled the back of that with sheds. Yeah, so we don't do that a, too much. There's a lot, a lot more uh, bucks, a lot more bucks that survive in those states. A lower hunter numbers, a shorter gun season during the rut. All these things that contribute to why they have uh, more mature bucks uh, during the hunting season. Uh, so uh, you know, try as we might, have things better here in Michigan. And they, this is what we get. So it's up to us as landowners. And so I, I, you know, I only, uh, I typically only kill one buck a year. I. I I was a, I would kill everybody. You know, if I had two tags, I'd kill two bucks, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you, I was that guy once. And uh, I don't do that anymore. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, I just think for myself, I like to have uh, something really cool that I've seen and he's living here and maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll be here next year. So, no, that's, that's pretty neat. And, you know, you, you mentioned you're going to Missouri um, when I talked to you yesterday on the phone, and 
Let's let's dive into the Habitat Solutions 360 a little bit. Tell us about your company and uh, what you do and what what you can do for others. And um, sure. let's cover that. Yeah, be happy to. You know, um, I I offer a consulting service uh, to help landowners, big and small, to improve their habitat so that they can get more enjoyment. And regardless of what that is, and one of the first questions uh, I ask any landowners, what are your goals? You know, what do you want out of this property from a from a, a, a habitat standpoint? But to, to carry on with that, I, I, uh, I basically develop short and long-term plans so that people can improve their habitat so that they can get more enjoyment out of their hunting. And that is done, uh, every, you know, uh, I'm extremely thorough. I bring uh, a ton of information with me that I hand out to every client when I visit them. I leave them with a, uh, with my own CD that probably has, if you were to try and go through it and read it and look at every picture and really understand all the diagrams and the drawings that I put in there, there's about two solid weeks of study work in there. Wow. I, mean, I, I, I literally bring information to help you identify what, what a preferred uh, browse species is and what a non-preferred browse species are, um, all about conifers and conifer management, uh, switchgrass and warm season grass management, food plot ideas, food, food plot techniques, uh, problems you're going to run into. So... My philosophy all along has been uh, I can't do all this work for everybody. I mean, there's certain habitat companies out there that that's, that's their goal is to come in and do a probably not as thorough job uh, assessing and consulting because that's not their end game. Their end game is to do the work, to come in and plant the food plots, uh, create the bedding cover, uh, remove the trees, open the canopy, and that, that's great. I mean, it's good that there's people out there to do that, but... Um, my goal is not to do that. Um, I do have a few customers that I do hinge cut trees on their property every year. And actually this, this one Missouri client I've been going to, uh, I'm going to cut two days on his property. Um, you know, and it's, it's pretty neat when a person trusts me enough and, to come in and dump their trees for them, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I'd probably, yeah. yeah. probably let you come yeah. and mine after um, this conversation. But, uh, uh, so basically, my goal is to help anybody that's frustrated and really wants to improve their hunting and improve their habitat. Uh, I, I can, I can, I, I do a really neat PowerPoint presentation uh, for different people at, at different meetings and things like that. And at the end, I always show a guy laying on the couch, and I go, here, you know, here is exactly how to keep your hunting just as bad as it has been last year. And that's by laying on the couch, right? Point. <laughs> and, and if you want to make a change in your habitat, you got to get out there and do something. And, uh, uh, I, you know, a lot of people start with food plots, but when you get into the timber and you start doing timber stand improvement, and that can be having a timber harvest, a sweat timber harvest, having clear cuts, you know, because, you know, Michigan is so diverse. We've got poplar stands, we've got pine stands, we've got, we got sandy areas up north and on the west side of the state. We've got heavy ground and then fertile ground in the center part of the state. We've got hill country, flat country. So we've got all these different areas of Michigan. So I always have something in my bag of tricks that I can hand over to somebody and explain to them so that they can take the property the way it is right now, spend about three to five years, and just change their hunting. 
Wow. Uh, so, 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 in a that's my quick. Uh, that's what Habitat Solutions does. Okay, and and how many properties have you done this for so far? Oh man, uh, I started this business Just officially. Just a ballpark, yeah. If you had to. Um. Yeah, if I was to give you a ballpark, I'm gonna say between 850 and a thousand properties. Holy cow! Yeah. Wow. Um. There was up until about 2015. And, and maybe through 15, I did around 65 to 75 properties a year. Holy cow. Wow. Now, can you do these properties? I mean, if something want, someone wants something simple, can you just do it over at Google Earth and give them some solutions, or do you actually need I, I to walk can. these properties? Um, I would say all the properties that I go to and the numbers I've given you are properties I've actually visited and walked. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, just to give you an idea, you know, I, I'll have a guy call me, and he's got 26 acres, and uh, so that's going to take me about three to four hours, because all the time I'm there, I'm showing him where the deer are really eating a lot, where they're bedding, or where he's got a major gap problem, and I say, boy, you've got a stand here, and this is a good stand, and I see you've, built, you've done this nice food plot, but there's no way in and out of here. You know, and so we discuss, you know, two or three options that he can do to improve his entry and exit and his and his chances for uh, being more successful. So that would be a four-hour uh, visit, and I I finish the visit with I always bring a Google Earth drawing or I print out a Google Earth uh, photo, and then I sit down and I make a black and white sketch of all the improvements that I recommend. And it's actually pretty darn nice. I mean, some guys go, wow, I can't believe you just did that, Joe. <laughs> and it's nothing compared to these really nice ones I used to do. And uh, um, I got out of doing those because it, it just became so time-consuming. Uh, I would I would get on a property in a large, and every once in a while I get hired by somebody to have 260 or 320 acres or something really big. And it would take me 80 hours in my office to do that drawing. But, wow. I mean, they would... As soon as I would give it to them, they would laminate it and frame it, too. I mean, they loved it, you know, and they were – I don't know if you guys have ever seen any of the uh, hand drawings I did, but they truly were works of art. Uh, you know, my background comes from uh, hand-drawing draftsmen, uh, you know, trade, and uh, it, they really are uh, very detailed drawings. You know, everything from buck bedding areas to doe bedding areas to entry and exit stand locations and food plots and screening and conifers and switchgrass and, and you know, here's your rut stands, here's your early season stands, here's your late season stands. They, they're very thorough. Wow. Uh, but today I have tried to condense that to help people make it a little more affordable because, you know, time is money. And so really, you're, uh, you, you know, I could, if I'm on an 80-acre property and I spend all day and, and I, and I uh, do a nice nice drawing and a list for him, and then I, I bring a really nice photo or a folder with all this information. Uh, it's, it's pretty darn affordable, and he's got something to work for from the moment I leave, and I always finish that day grabbing my saw and building a bedding area on their property. And uh, uh, just, let me see what, yesterday, when I was, I was up in the thumb yesterday, and we found some beds in the snow. We had quite a bit of snow up there. And he had a pretty good area, and I said, this would be a great place to do some hinge cutting. We got, you know, the deer are bedding here anyway. Man, these two guys just loved it. 
I mean, they were just so into it. And that probably dropped about 35 to 40 trees on their property. Probably did about half acre. Took about 70% of the trees out. They had some dead trees I had to cut. But he, he had a lot of, uh, of uh, pig nut hickory, and he had some, some elm, and they had some, some ash trees that were still alive, so they all hinge cut real good. And, uh, man, I mean, you know, it, it's going to be great. I mean, there's no doubt the deer are going to move right in there. And uh, I told him where to put a camera. I said, if you want to see deer eating the ends of these trees, you know, as soon as you, you hinge cut a tree at this time of the year, it's covered in butt. And so that is instant deer food. Well, now, what do you say your average size property you work with, and what is the smallest piece of property? I would, I would say, you know, quite honestly, probably my average property is 48. And I would say my smallest ones are going to be in that 18 to 22 acres. You know, you start getting down to 10 to 7 acres, it's hard to, uh, to make my, uh, you know, my service uh, worthwhile, okay? Yeah. Even though I, uh, you go back about eight or ten years ago, there's a fellow that lives about 20 miles from here. He had a seven-acre property. I helped him with that seven-acre property, and he and he has a house and a one-acre yard in that seven acres. So really, he's got six acres of habitat, and it is amazing what that guy's killing every year. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because he's he understands he understands that if he hunts at the wrong time, he screws it up. Yeah. So he he's got about three or four good hunts a year on that property, and he's really good with his scent control, and he uses his intel from his game camera, and he knows where his deer are bedding, and he knows about the food. He's created the pinch points. He hunts those pinch points. It's just like I do at the right time with the right conditions, and he kills that deer. And he's killed him up. He's he's actually killed, uh, I think he killed one in the, Right around 146 or, or, or right in that area, you know, just an awesome deer, you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they Sounds like your, your property, Jared. And uh, I'll tell you, I, uh, I just got a text message the other day from a really cool guy. Um, I can't mention his name because he's kind of well-known, but he's just, uh, personally, he's just a super neat guy, and he's got, he bought a new property uh, in a different state. I helped him three years ago, and he was, even though he, he was getting good pictures, he 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 was just he was like, man, I cannot, I can't believe it. I got these deer here. I got pictures. I can't tell. Them. And I I helped him with his access and gave him some really good tips on food. Showed him where to hinge cut. Actually did the hinge cutting. He called me the other day, so excited. He says, I got to send you these pictures. Himself, his son, and his daughter killed three bucks this year. Nothing was less than one fifty. Wow, jeez. You know, and and you gotta love I, those calls. I, I can tell you, um, you know, if you go to my website, and my goal is, you know, this business is not about me. It's about you, the client. And there's a whole lot of other people in this industry, and it's always about them. And if I was that kind of guy, I could put 150 photos a year of all these successful clients with their big bucks. But that's just not – I'm not that kind of guy. I don't think that's how I like to market my business, Okay. Um, it should always be about the client. What are their goals? What do they need to do? And I'm there to help them. So some guys want to kill 200-inch deer. Some guys just want to see a two-and-a-half-year-old that their daughter and their son can kill. Some guys just want to shoot a couple, three big does uh, consistently. And so whatever those goals are, I'm there to help them get there. 
Very well put. I like that. Uh, and what is the what is the website for your uh, Habitat Solutions business? Jay? So yeah, my my website is Habitat Solutions with an S, and then the number three six zero dot com. And okay. people can they can contact me there. You can re- I I've got a lot of educational stuff. There's neat stuff you can learn about Habitat on that site. And actually, I'm about to go into a. Um, Within a year, it's going to be revamped. I'm working with a guy right now, and I'm going to be really doing a lot of cool content and really great videos again because I, oh, cool. I've i been working so hard, I haven't had the time, and I really miss it. So uh, I'm, I'm focusing a lot more on that. And um, I will tell you, just I'm one of those guys that's always trying something new, and I won't offer that to a client until I've proven that it works. But I'm always trying something cool and new and out of the box. And I've got something new that uh, over the next couple of years you'll see coming out in the videos. And you'll dig it, okay? Awesome. It's cool awesome. stuff. No, I'm, I'm looking you. forward to it. Yeah, that's great. You know, I appreciate uh, you covering that. There, there's, there's a, I know I've been, we've been talking a long time, and you guys got to edit all this and everything. <laughs> but there are so many different subjects that we could cover. So if you ever want to do this again, or, uh, you know, a couple, three times a year, I'd be happy to help you guys out. Um, I just love talking about habitat, hunting deer. You guys are starting out, and uh, you'll find out I'm one of those guys that's out to help everybody. Uh, even when I'm in Missouri, I'm doing, they've got a turkey calling contest out there and uh, a habitat day, and I'm doing a presentation for a group of people out there just to help them out. And, uh, you know, I, I just think what comes around goes around, you know. So, yeah, and it's all about giving back to the community and just getting involved. And, yeah, you know, I've been getting a, the young young guys in the sport. And yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so I can just say to anybody that's listening, um, don't be afraid to try something. And there is so much good information available today compared to just six or seven years ago. There's also you also got to filter it through. There's some bad information out there too. But I, I would I would always err on you're better to do something than to do nothing. I, I think the the biggest struggle some of uh, my past clients have had is they're so afraid of making a mistake they do nothing. And, and that's just not that's relevant. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, that's awesome, Jay. Yeah, we'd love to have you on again. Um, I would definitely reach out to you for that coming up. We're gonna keep diving into habitat uh, more and more. As, sure. we, as we get on with this, you're actually our our first episode, so we wanted to make sure. Oh, cool! Yeah, we wanted to make sure to oh, get man, somebody I'm, on I'm here. Honored. That's great. I'm honored. Well, uh, <laughs> hey, be sure to uh, send me something that uh, a link. Let me know when when the episode is on. Oh yeah, we'll and do. Uh, I'll, I'll market it as well. I'll, I'll put it on my Facebook page and get people to see it. And, uh, I've got a lot of followers and stuff that. Uh, keep track of what I do, but uh, oh, I'm about to go into I, these next uh, these next three weeks, I think I'm home for about seven days, so uh, it's like this every year, so between now and June, I'm not home much. <laughs> but, you must have a nice yeah. wife. Oh, she, she's the greatest, she is the greatest individual, <laughs> she really is, she, she is an awesome woman, and uh, yeah, we've had a great time, and uh, you know, it's pretty cool, I'll get up this morning and look out my... Uh, uh, bathroom uh, window and there's seven or eight deer in my yard, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> Walking out of the switchgrass and checking out the edge of the yard. So 
pretty cool. Well, that's great, Jake. Hey, well, I want well, to thank you, know, you uh, uh, one more time. I know also, um, did you want to talk quick about your Whitetail Properties gig? Um, you know, uh, sure, I can say a little bit about it. You know, um, I, I met the guys from Whitetail Properties uh, several years ago, the owners, um, as a client. They called me, um, not needed some help in Illinois and, and Missouri. And, and that's how I met these guys. I was impressed with their uh, business model, and they offered me an opportunity to uh, to be a land specialist with Whitetail Properties here in uh, in uh, southern Michigan. And I've got five counties, Lenaway, Hillsdale, Jackson, Washtenaw, and Monroe. And as a habitat guy, I'm real selective about the kind of properties I market. So uh, sometimes I've got ten listings, sometimes I've got one. Right now I'm down to one because the all the good ones I had, I sold. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a <laughs> and I've, market right I've now. visited I have visited several properties uh, in the last few uh, weeks and months, and they just have not met my criteria. And because uh, I know the people that contact me like like to get a hold of a good property, but Whitetail Properties, uh, real estate prequel company, and uh, when a guy uh, reaches out to me and wants to sell a piece of property, I can. Uh, Definitely get them in the right direction to list it and sell it. And then when buyers, of course, contact me, um, you know, they learn so much about habitat. They always shake my hand and say, man, I've learned so much about deer today. <laughs> I, I forgot why I was even here. I'm supposed to be talking about this property, you know. So, uh, But, yeah, that I can be found there at uh, whitetailproperties.com. Go to that website. Uh, uh, click on agents. Go to Michigan. You'll see my name. Click on my name and uh, – find me there but like i said right now i do not have i've got one jackson county listing but other than that uh the market's been really lean right now yeah so yeah it's it's, it's actually a good sign because it shows how the economy is you know there there's several properties out there but good properties those are hard to find so uh hey i I appreciate uh I, i love talking to you guys and and i don't mind doing podcasts every once in a while with people so uh Maybe we can catch up in the end of the summer, and I can talk about the up-and-comers I've got in Velvet that I'm waiting to chase uh, this coming fall or something like that. So, yeah, uh, let's go ahead and do that, Jake. We really appreciate okay. your time. Thanks again. You're welcome. Um, you know, and good luck on your trip this week. Oh, thank you very much. You guys have yeah, a good one. Jake. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, that was uh, that was an exciting call, Jared. I, uh, I'm glad yeah, we got Jake on the line there. He, uh, I, I didn't realize how knowledgeable he was about habitat and deer hunting. I mean, he kind of kind of covered everything in a short period of time. We're definitely going to have to have him back on and try to dive a little deeper into some of those subjects. But, man, I was uh, I got a whole notepad full of notes right now um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to review and go over because as he's talking, I'm, I'm writing down things, and then I'm, I'm looking to my right saying, you know, preparing the next question I wanted to ask him because, yeah, it was just a cool interview, a cool guy, and, uh, you know, I'm glad he got into the industry how he did, and it uh, sounds like he has a nice little business for himself. Yeah, sure does. All right, guys, well, that was our first podcast in the books. We're going to have many more to come with many guests, but as you know, you can find us on Facebook at Habitat Podcast and also online at Habitat podcast.com and 
we will also be on iTunes, so you can look us up there. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed our uh, podcast, and uh, tune in soon for our next guest. Thanks for listening, guys. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.